Okay, we will continue now with the study of the Sati Satana Sutra. And last time we examined section number four of the Sutra, that is the reflection on the repulsiveness of the body. And now we come to section number five. This is called the reflection on the material element. It is called Datu Manasikara. Okay, first I will read the text and then give the explanation. And further, monk, a monk reflects on this very body, however it be placed or disposed by way of the material element, thinking there are in this body the element of earth, the element of water, the element of fire, the element of wind or air. Then the Buddha gives an example or a simile to illustrate this. He says, it is just as if a clever cow butcher or his apprentice, having slaughtered a cow and divided it into portions should be sitting at the junction of four high roads. In the same way, a monk reflects on this very body as it is placed or disposed by way of the material elements, considering that there there are in this body the elements of earth, water, fire, and wind. Thus he lives, contemplating the body in the body. Okay, now according to the Buddha's teaching, the fundamental constituents of the world of matter are what is called the four primary elements, the four great elements. These are called, in conventional terminology, the elements of earth, water, fire, and air. But each of these terms is actually used to signify a particular, or to represent symbolically, a particular fundamental property of matter. The earth element represents the property of a solidity or resistance in matter. manifested as the sense of things being hard when the earth element is dominant or soft when the earth element is weak. And the earth element serves as a foundation for all the other material properties. And the earth element, like all of the elements, is present in every type of material phenomena. Even though something might seem to be, in the case of a glass of water, there's also, even though it's liquid and soft, but the reason 
that the water, why it occupies space, why it has a certain, there's a certain resistance if you try to compress it, is because of the presence of the earth element. And the earth element is found in every type of material phenomena, whether it be something that appears solid, liquid, even the particles of air have earth elements. If you try to compress the air in a container, eventually your ability to compress that comes to an end. If you have a balloon, and you try to press it, press it, press it, eventually the balloon will explode. That's because of the resistance of the earth element. Then in all material phenomena, there is the water element. The water element is said to be that property of matter which that property of matter which has the ability to cause matter to bind together. It's the property of binding or cohesion. And to illustrate this, the commentaries say that if you take, say, some flour, like wheat flour or rice flour, and you take the handful and you throw a handful, then all of the flour will scatter. But if you take the flour and you mix water with it, then all the particles of the flour bind together and become a solid mass. And so the liquid element is that property of matter by reason of which the material particles cohere, hang together. And we experience it as oozing and trickling. That's the manifestation of the liquid element. And just like the earth element, the water element is present in all material phenomena. Even in, say, the solid metal, the water element is present as that factor by which, by reason of which, the particles of metal bind together and form a distinct object. Also in the air, there's water element, even in fire, <laughs> there's some degree of the water element. When something is burning, as it burns, out of the flame there comes moisture, drops of moisture, which shows that the water element is present even in something burning. Then the fire element is that factor in matter, that property of matter, by reason of which there is heat, differing degrees of heat. And every material phenomena has some degree of heat, even <laughs> If you have an ice cube, so it's very cold to our touch because our bodies are warmer than the ice cube. But even that ice cube, <laughs> if some insect were to come from, do you know what dry ice is? Do you have that here? It's liquid carbon dioxide. It's extremely cold. So if, say, an insect were to come from a block of dry ice to a block of liquid water ice, he'd think he was, he was coming to a tropical paradise. 
So even in outer space where the temperature can get close, very close to absolute zero, as long as there is any temperature, even a few degrees above absolute zero, there's some uh, presence of the heat element. And then the air element is that factor in matter which accounts for distension or expansion. And it's also the factor in matter which accounts for oscillation or vibration and movement in general. Like it said by science that all the molecules and atoms that make up the material world are in a constant process of vibration, constant movement. That constant movement is due to the presence of the air element. Okay, so those are the four primary elements in general. But this contemplation, this meditation on the material elements, the Buddha says, is supposed to be done on this very body that is on our own body. And one is supposed to contemplate that there are in, in this body the earth element, the water element, the fire element, and the air element. Now, in this sutta, the Buddha has explained this meditation on the elements very, very briefly. He doesn't go into an elaborate explanation of it, because he's done that elsewhere. But if we were to explain how this element, how this meditation on the elements is done in a more detailed way, then we would first go back to the list of the 32 parts of the body that come in the section four on the reflection on the repulsiveness of the body. Then we consider that in this list there are, I think it's 20 factors which are material, which are the earth elements. There is the hairs of the head, hairs of the body, nails, teeth, skin, flesh, sinews, bones, bone marrow, kidney, heart, liver, midriff, spleen, lungs, intestines, mesentery, gorge, feces, and then we could add the 32nd part, the brain. All of those parts are considered manifestations of the earth element. It doesn't mean that there is only the earth element in these 20 parts. As I said, all four elements are present in any type of material phenomenon. If one takes a liver, besides being solid, it's also moist. That's the water element. It also has a certain heat. That's the fire element. And it also has a certain distension and it particles are in some degree of vibration, that's the air element. But in those 20 parts, the earth element is predominant. And so in a conventional way, manner of consideration, we can consider these 20 parts as representing the earth element. Then the remaining 12 parts Bile, phlegm, pus, blood, sweat, fat, tears, grease, saliva, nasal mucus, 
the synovial fluids or liquid of the joints and urine, those represent the water element. And so in that way we see in this body, we have first the earth element, then the liquid element. Then when the Buddha explains the material element, then he says, that there's also the fire element. The fire element is that by reason of which the body has its warmth, usually a temperature of 98.6 degrees Fahrenheit. And that warmth, that natural warmth of the body is due to the fire element. And he says that it's also due to the fire element that the body ages or decays. And it's also through the fire element when the fire element flares up and becomes too intense, then we have a burning fever. <laughs> then the fire element is also what is responsible for the digestion of food. It's the heat of the digestive system which burns up the food, which causes the food to release its vital nutrients, or its vital nutrients. I think in singular you have the word for hunger is buttakin. That means the fire of the stomach. <laughs> because when the stomach doesn't get food, then it starts to complain by <laughs> giving signals by flaring up into a burning sensation. And then in the body there is also the air element. The Buddha says that there are winds which go upward, winds which go downward, winds which are in the belly, winds in the intestines. Then there are winds which go through all of the limbs of the body to cause the movement, bending and stretching. And then there is the air of in and out breathing. And so in these ways we have the air element present. And so when one does the contemplation of the body, then one starts mentally dissecting this body by seeing it as made up of these four great elements. It's not just a matter of repeating something conceptually, but one has to be able to actually envision and to really feel that this body is just a compound of the four great elements. And the Buddha says, he says that one reflects on this very body, however it is placed or disposed, that is in whatever posture the body is set, one is practicing this analysis of the elements. Usually one will do it when sitting, but also even when doing walking meditation, there's a way to do the walking meditation combined with the contemplation of the elements. In this practice, the walking, the steps, are divided into four parts. First, there's the lifting of the foot. That's a light upward movement. And one considers that that takes place through the predominance of the fire element. But the fire element is the element of energy. 
it's a light upward moving force and so through the fire element the foot is lifted then the movement of the foot forward coming forward that takes place through the air element since the air element is the principle of motion then when the foot drops that shows some weight or some heaviness and that's considered to be the operation of the water element then after the foot is dropped and placed on the ground then when one shifts the weight then one presses on the foot which is on the ground and that is the operation of the earth element because one has that resistance between the ground and the foot and that feeling of two heavy surfaces two heavy surfaces coming together and one can sense the resistance between those two surfaces so that's the operation of the earth element and then this basic practice of the contemplation of the elements it's an exercise in developing the pasana or insight and the purpose of this contemplation is to eliminate the conception of a living being a person a substantial self and ordinarily we grasp the body as a unity we take it to be a single substantial entity and then we identify with the body taking it to be mine or myself something that I can really hold on to is being mine but if we analyze the body into these four great elements then the appearance of some solid substance in the body disappears and we could further reinforce that sense of the impersonality of the body if we consider the relationship between the internal element and the external element this is what the venerable Sariputta explains in the great discourse on the simile of the elephant foot which I explained last year in this exercise one considers that there is the external element the external earth element and then there's the earth element of the body then one considers that the external earth element comes into the body and it becomes part of this body when we eat food in the food there's earth element when we see the rice and curries on the plate then we think it's something external <laughs> if somebody comes up approaches us like he's going to greet us while we're sitting at the table and if he starts talking to the food saying hello Mr. De Silva how are you today then we think he is <laughs> lost his sense <laughs> but if we eat the rice and curries <laughs> then maybe within 24 hours 48 hours <laughs> the rice and curries become part of this body 
then we think, now that is me. <laughs> then after we have, so that's the external earth element comes into the body and it becomes the internal earth element. Then after the food is digested, then what remains gets eliminated. Then that becomes external earth element. So the internal becomes external. Then the water element, of course we drink the water. If somebody comes up here to the table and says, um, addressing the glass of water, he says, thank you for the lecture, Venerable Bodhi. <laughs> then, <laughs> then we think he's mentally on him. But here I'm drinking the water, and then in a few hours the water becomes part of Venerable Sir. <laughs> Then the heat of the body is maintained by the heat of the environment. And so there's an interaction between external heat and or the external fire element and the internal fire element. Then also we constantly breathe in. And so the oxygen that's part of the external air element comes in and becomes part of our body. Then when we breathe out all of the carbon dioxide that has been collected by the blood cells and brought to the lungs, all of that carbon dioxide comes out into the atmosphere, becomes part of the external air element. And so there is a constant interaction or constant exchange going on between the outer elements and the internal elements. What is ex external becomes internal. What is internal becomes external. And what is going on in this interaction is just exchanging of the four great elements. And so when one examines the body as made up of the four great elements, as supported and sustained by the external element, then the perception of the being or person or I disappears and we see just a compound of the four great elements. The Buddha illustrates this with the example, not a very pleasant example, but an effective one. He says, it is like a butcher who has a cow. While he's raising the cow to be <laughs> slaughtered and feeding it and taking care of it, then he's always seeing it as a cow. When he's bringing it to the slaughterhouse, then he's still seeing it as a cow. Even when he has it in the slaughterhouse, he's still seeing it, and when it's slaughtered, he still thinks I'm seeing from slaughtering a cow. But when the cow has been killed and it is cut up into pieces, into prime ribs and steaks and one piece after another and is put out in the marketplace, then he doesn't see the cow anymore, but he just sees pieces of meat. In the same way, one could use the inner eye to cut the body apart into the four great elements. 
and to see it as this compound of the elements. Okay, so that is the reflection on the material element. If there are any questions on this part, then I will ask for them now. There are some fire elements will remain in the body. The The fire element is sustained to some extent by vitality, by the, by the life principle. And so that's why when the body, when we're alive, the body has a temperature of 98.6, it's quite warm. But when death takes place, then the vi there's no more vitality. And so that can support the living fire element, but it just remains the fire element that present in any type of inanimate matter. And so the body cools off and just goes down to that temperature. But of course, since all matter has the heat element, then there's some heat element in even in the course. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think electricity might be considered a manifestation of the fire element. It can do that, yeah. Excuse me? Yeah, I don't know how energy could be divided into this. I would tend to put energy with the fire element. So I think to answer that question would require somebody who has more scientific knowledge of the different forms of energy than I have. Any other questions? Okay, then we will go on to, <laughs> to the next set of exercises. Okay, these are the nine cemetery contemplations. These are rather difficult to practice, <laughs> but in the time of the Buddha, when robbers or criminals were executed by the state, then they would take the bodies and they would throw them into charnel ground, where they would be just exposed to the elements. And so it, it would be a very good opportunity for meditating monks to go to the cremation ground and to look at the bodies in different stages of, of decay. In the Visuddhimagga, in chapter 6, very detailed instructions are given on every step in the practice of the cemetery meditation, beginning with how a monk should go to the cemetery, how he should behave in the cemetery, how he should conduct himself when he's leaving the cemetery and returning to the monastery. Okay, so here, we will anyway, we'll read the text. The Buddha says, and further monks, it is as if a monk 
sees a body one day dead, two days dead, or three days dead, swollen, blue, and festering, thrown in the charnel ground. He then applies this perception to his own body thus. Verily or indeed, my own body too is of the same nature. Such it will become and it will not escape that. So the Pali uses the word sayatapi, which is translated here as if among. And I understand this to imply that this meditation does not require that one actually go to the channel ground to see the corpse. But if one can get, if one has a very good imagination, or even if one can see maybe photographs or some picture of a body in the charnel ground, that would be enough to provide an image for the contemplation. But of course, if one really wants to get the most vivid image possible, then one should see a corpse in the flesh itself. When one considers the corpse in the condition of being swollen, blue, and festering, and then one applies that idea in relation to this own body, that considering that this body also is of the same nature, that this body is bound to die, and when it dies, then it will also become swollen, blue, and festering, and it will not escape that state. When that contemplation is done very strongly and keenly, then it has two effects. One is that it creates a certain state of agitation. That's the first effect. Because always we think, even though we don't admit this, but we think to ourselves that this body will live forever, that it's not going to die. I remember a passage that comes in, I think it's in the Mahabharata, where some king asks Krishna, what is the most wonderful thing in the world? Then Krishna says, the most wonderful thing in the world is that even though a person sees others around him dying and recognizes that he himself is going to die, he never really seriously considers his own death. And so when one is face to face with an actual corpse and then one applies that consideration to one's own body then it sort of breaks or shatters that complacent thought that I'm going to live forever that this body will continue on till eternity so when that happens first there's a kind of anxiety or agitation But then, as one persists with that reflection, then there comes a sense of detachment from the body, a sense of de-identification with the body. So instead of identifying and taking this body to be me or mine, me and mine, then one realizes that the body is just some animate material phenomena 
which has come into being through causes and will disintegrate when the causes that have brought it into existence no longer operate. And then that gives this a sense of joyful liberation from the body, that one is no longer bound up by identifying with the body. And so sometimes people think that because, especially people from the modern West, where everything is so progressive and everything is so tied to achieving enjoyment in this life, when people read about Buddhism and then they read about these cemetery meditations especially, or the meditation on the repulsiveness of the body, they think, oh, what a dreary religion, frightening religion Buddhism is. So it seems that the Buddhists must always be going around with very, <laughs> very sad expressions on their face. They think it's almost morbid to be contemplating corpses. But that's because they don't know that when one does this contemplation, the end result is a sense of lightness or happiness, that one is not bound up forever with this body. Okay, and then the Buddha repeats that refrain for all exercises in the cemetery contemplation. When one lives contemplating the body and the body internally, then one will be taking this idea that this body is subject to death and disintegration one applies it to one's own body. Then one lives contemplating the body and the body externally. Then one takes that same idea of the swollen, blue and festering <laughs> corpse and one applies it to the bodies of other beings, other people, that everybody else will eventually die and their bodies will become swollen, blue, and festering. And then one lives contemplating the body and the body internally and externally. That is, alternating the contemplation, going back and forth from one's own body to that of others. And then one lives contemplating origination factors in the body. This is when one considers what are the causal factors that bring the body into existence. Or he lives contemplating, uh, there's a line missing. He lives contemplating dissolution factors in the body. One contemplates the factors that cause the cessation or dissolution of the body or he lives contemplating origination and dissolution factors in the body that is contemplating both together for then his mindfulness is established with the thought the body exists only to the extent necessary for knowledge and mindfulness and he lives independent and clings to nothing in the world. In this way, also monk, a monk lives contemplating the body in the body. Okay, that is the first exercise. Then there come eight more exercises. Each is done in the same way, so the later stages get progressively harder to find. <laughs> the second is that one 
contemplates a body which is thrown in the charnel ground, being eaten by crows, hawks, vultures, dogs, jackals, or by different kinds of worms. And then one applies that idea or perception to one's own body. The third, the monk sees a body thrown in the in the charnel ground and it's reduced to a skeleton <laughs> with some flesh and blood attached to it. In the fourth, the body is reduced to a skeleton which is smeared with blood but doesn't have any flesh without blood. One might have to get rather close to it to see whether <laughs> it's with flesh or without flesh. <laughs> then the fifth stage, the skeleton, is without flesh and blood. And sixth, it's just the bones which are no longer held together, they're without any binding and scattered in different directions. And that would give even a stronger sense in this phase, the stronger sense of the egoless nature of the body when one sees just the bones scattered in different directions. Now, even the shape of a connected body has vanished. And now it's just parts which are not even assembled together anymore this miscellaneous part. Then heat, the bones become bleak. <laughs> In the eighth stage, <laughs> one sees a heap of bones which is more than a year old. bones have been reduced to dust. I think this will give the strongest sense of anatta or the non-self nature of the body. Since even the bones that have remained of the body have just been turned to dust. And maybe when strong wind comes, then the dust gets blown away or the dust gets absorbed into the earth and even the least trace of the person has disappeared. Okay, and then all of those are to be applied to one's own body. And then the refrain is repeated for all the different aspects of the contemplation. Okay, I'll ask now if there are any questions on this section.
Okay, are there any questions or comments? <laughs> Okay, then I think I will stop here for today and then pick up next week. We'll do sections two and three, contemplation of feeling and contemplation of consciousness. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.